Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with singer-songwriter and producer Joe Henry. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Well, I, I'm coming to the your show tonight with my daughter. Oh, She's home for college. Yeah, yeah, so I'm excited about that. My son is playing with me tonight. He uh, is. Yeah, he's I a heard really him gifted, play with uh, you um, in something I listened to. Yeah. And is he on the Invisible Hour album? He's all the reads all over yeah, the Yeah, I thought so. so. Because I heard him in that interview. I think it was the one you did with Don Gagne. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he mentioned him. Yeah. And then I, was, I thought that must be him also. Yeah. yeah. that's great. No, he was a big, a huge part of, uh, of the whole... Oh, thank you. Uh, ...conceptual driving wheel of Invisible Hour sonically, of, of wanting it to be folky and intimate, but, n- but if it needed to get orchestral and widescreen, you know, how do you do that and not that's defeat really, the intimacy really great. of it? Because he's a, he's a he's a heavy jazzer, but he's deeply into uh, old time yeah. folk music. So, um, song yeah, it's is a very really it's a very him. cool sound. Well, it's a, it's a particular. And he's not just there because it worked for cheap, you know, for me. Um, he's there because it, <laughs> yeah. he really understands that balance. I don't really know anybody else who thinks like that, who is so mm. able and willing to abstract things as needed, and also really um, really song sensitive. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. the shape of the song, the, the the narrative of the song is still Trump, you know. Right. That's a pretty rare thing. Yeah. Um, is he a full-time musician? He is. Wow. Yeah. That um, must be fun for you. It's unbelievable. Um, I mean, I'm not his only employer, but I mean, I'm, I'm certainly one of them. But yeah. I mean, he lives in New York, and he's, you know, cutting his way through the, through the yeah. field somehow. That's great. Okay. Um, so we, we're... We've been in this space a year, and um, and it's a beautiful place. It's to come a beautiful to work space. <clears throat> We're still trying to kind of figure out how to do things in here. Uh-huh. I think this is going to work. Yeah. But we've it's hard. It's a it 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 can get too intimate, and mm-hmm. then it can also feel cold. I don't know. Yeah. But I, this feels good. Ooh, I'm, I'm um, good. Yeah. And uh, what do I want to say? I I think I may look at my notes more than I like to because. I've really focused on your writing, on your words, mm. um, and I and I think I want to I want to talk to you about words and ideas. Sure, As, you know, for you they all. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> are you guys are are we taping? Okay, and should we just start going when we? Okay, um, and for you, of course, they're totally inseparable from music, but mm-hmm. but I think that's where I want to focus in the conversation. So I've sure I've written a lot of your words down. And um, and you've got your guitar, and I don't necessarily expect that we'll have music in the middle mm-hmm. of the conversation. But if you feel like doing it, just go. Feel free. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, as I told you, yeah. Your, if you your, feel inspired, your, your people have never once punctuated any of my conversation yeah. with a song. I don't um, necessarily. I don't think it, it needs to happen. I know people who do that really well and, yeah. and, uh, and, and without any self-consciousness, but I'm not sure that I'm one of them. Well, I think sometimes songwriters and musicians are not really talkers, like that, that the music is the medium. Well. And they need um, the medium to say what they have to say. Anybody close to me... Uh, 
I should say none of them would refer to me as not being a talker. <laughs> right. I got uh, that impression. I come from good Southern people and, yeah. and, and we're talkers. Yeah. Um, but I, I will say that I, I know a lot of musicians who aren't necessarily forward with their artistry. I mean, they wouldn't just um, push themselves into the frame of a conversation and say, you know, hey, by the way, I wrote a song about that. Let me, let me share it with you. Or, yeah. Yeah, um, that, I, I observe a, a pretty distinct line in my in my life between what I you know how I disappear into my work and and the way in which I I'm willing to make it public. I'm still sort of wrestling with that a bit. Right. Okay. Well, let's start before we say anything really important. <laughs> um, uh, I just want to start with you know you've said that um, that what the Bible means to your parents. The American Songbook means to you. Uh, was that always true? I mean, that that gives me the impression that the Bible was a presence in your childhood. Oh, it was absolutely. I mean, my parents, um, both from North Carolina, as I am, I didn't, I didn't really grow up there, but my parents both came from the Charlotte area, and they're very devout Christian people. And I mean, you know, small C Christian people, not corporate logo capital C Christian people. Um, so I did grow up with that being an absolute fundamental part of their being. Yeah. Um, and I was not only invited for that to be true for me, but I, I wouldn't say I insisted, but I, I was brought up as if that was, you know, this is your vocabulary. This is your spiritual, cultural vocabulary. You look through the lens of, of American Christianity and, and see what you can see. Um, but I will say that with no disrespect at all to my beloved parents and, and their faith, which is paramount to them and, and remains so, um, even as a young person, uh, that wasn't authentic to me. I sat in a church pew every Sunday just like I went to school. You know, only if you were sick were you not there. <laughs> and and it, it didn't add up to me. The way that it was presented to me did not make sense to me. Uh, Music, on the other hand, without me having to decide to let it, you know, in, um, changed me. And, you know, you're so vulnerable to influence, especially when you don't know you're being influenced. You know, when you're young enough and something, you know, enters your your psychic bloodstream and and changes that landscape, and you don't know to protect those borders, you're wide open to it. Um, I found it doing to me what I now think, you know— other people, you know, what they get out of, you know, a spiritual awakening, I got from a musical awakening. I didn't know how to call it that, but I, I see now that that's what was happening to me. Yeah. And is it right that you were a stutterer, that you stuttered when yes. you were a child? Yeah. But you could sing. Well, um, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting. Uh, um, uh, a man named Sam Stevenson, who's a, who's a friend of mine as well, wrote a profile about me for the Paris Review, which is probably where you I read that. That's, so that's that, the only yeah. place I think it's ever yeah. uh, existed in, 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 in a piece. He interviewed my parents. Um, he's the first person ever asked if he could. He went and saw them. And somehow it came up in conversation with my parents that I'd stuttered as a child. And he asked uh, my mom and dad, when did I stop? And I think they said about seven or eight. And, they, and then he, he asked my brother David, who I lived with my entire life until I got married, um, when I stopped stuttering. And Dave said, I think he's about 22. 
And so where's the truth? <laughs> uh, the truth is, is that I never really stopped. I've just gotten really good at driving around it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't think about it. But there are moments where I notice that there are just, there's a word that I understand that I can't say. Yeah. And I pick another one. Um, and it, it sounds to me in, in reading your story that <clears throat> you, you also moved around a lot and that, that music was, was kind of a was, – music was home, that music was kind of a safe harbor. And I guess I just wondered if also with the stuttering, if music was a kind of safe harbor. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I was a very shy young person. Uh, you know, moving really amplified that, that I was always, you know, a new kid in school. We always seemed to live just far enough outside of town. I, a town, I always rode the second-run bus. Right. You know, I, was, I always packed a lunch. My mom packed it for me. But I never stood in the cafeteria line once in my life. I always felt like I was existing sort of outside of, of what I witnessed to be, you know, long and fruitful friendships. I could see them all around me, but I felt outside of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the fact that I was a stutterer made me that much more introverted when I was a new person in school. And when I moved to Ohio in fourth grade, I also had a, a southern accent, which didn't help me yeah. at all. Yeah, you've um, kept that southern accent, I have to say. I have? All these years. A little bit, an See, edge of I, it. I mean, I grew um, up in Oklahoma. You can't tell that anymore, can you? That's a very different part of the South. Well, it's not even say. the South. That's the problem. No, it's not the South, yeah. really. Um, but I'm sure that, that you know, because music was a, was a constant, it was a through line for me, um, you know, I, I retreated into it, I'm quite sure, and I spent a lot of time alone in my room, and not, not because I was fearful necessarily, but because that's, you know, that's where my focus was, and that's where I felt connected. I, uh, you know, easy to see that now. Yeah. So I, I wonder if that's kind of the origin of something that really stands out to me when I kind of look at the trajectory of your, your music, your life, and also how you've always, um, you've always been really expressive in writing about your music, which, you know, which ev- mm. every musician is not. I mean, even like the liner notes, mm. right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, it, it, it's a different, it's not something I would normally have as part of the research, mm-hmm. but I realized that those liner notes were really important. Um, and what I see is this, and you even, you know, you talk even in play, in fact, in the, when you're writing about the new album, you write about, you know, you say that this stands as a defining moment personally as an artist, though you preface that by saying, I feel myself continuing to evolve daily. And I think that's really present. That's really apparent, that that kind of personal yeah. evolution through time, which for you takes place or, you know, finds really, really... Uh, central expression in in music and in songwriting um you know so i'm just so like in the the fuse liner no or notes you know and this is 1999 you're mm. describing this project started in a converted upholstery shop where i would steal a half hour at a time whenever the baby was napping recording directly through the business end of a play school baby monitor the songs themselves just appeared like dandelions popping up in clusters seemingly overnight and then, you know, fast forward to Civilians, 2007, you kind of describe yourself. You've just turned 46 years old. I remain five, nine, five foot nine inches tall, hold steady at 146 pounds. 
I am Sagittarian, a Southerner by birth, and Midwestern by transplant, a loyal spouse, and the well-meaning but jittery father of two. The songs making up this particular collection came in fits and starts, a handful quite some time ago, but the majority arrived in a cluster in the late fall. I did what anyone would do, stomping them down and skimming off their juices for bottling. (laughs) Um, I don't think anybody would know to do that. (laughs) But... I guess I'm just so intrigued by this, and 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 it seems like you've been aware and maybe and and able to be articulate about this evolution, both of who you are and how songs arise, mm. and the interplay between those two things. Well, I will say that there was a long time where I I didn't think I was allowed uh, to be observant of my process, or certainly not uh, allowed to talk about it. Because the musicians I most admired, um, are, you know, were in our famously, um, well, uh, big liars for starters. But even beyond that, um, <laughs> you know, unwilling to to cast too much of a light, on, you know, on the work that the work itself is not, you know, throwing off. You know, you're not there to explain a song to anybody. Right. And so the fact that you might have an impulse to give anybody some additional context. You know, almost feels like you're hedging your bets and you don't have enough faith in the song speaking for itself or an album, you know, like a movie, um, you know, writing its own narrative in, in a way that, that, that people are going to take in as they will. You're not there to hold anybody's hand through it, nor should you. Yeah. Um, but I, I will say that as I, as I continue in my work life more and more, um, all the lines that distinguish that I used to think distinguished one part of my job from another part of my job uh, are, are all very blurred now. I don't really ob- observe a difference in what I do for myself as an artist or what I do for other people when I work as a record producer. Um, I don't think very differently about how I write liner notes, for instance, than how I write songs. Um, I, you mm-hmm. know, it's mm-hmm. it's about it's a it's surrender more than anything. Yeah, and it's about listening to. You know, to what this means to say, not what I mean to say. And all those things together kind of form a whole, yeah. which is still dynamic, right? Which is still unfolding. Yeah. But I mean, I, uh, I'm not, I'm not a faithful, uh, I'm not a reliable narrator. You know, um, I would say anything, but, but you know, at the same time, you know, um, you know, the, the truth that you're getting at has nothing to do with you know how factual you may be willing to be. But but in, in direct response to you know to what you sort of asked, I mm-hmm. uh, it really was a long time before I thought it was okay to share any thought at all about uh, you know what you know me the artist standing now off stage might think about uh, a song that that I have myself written. You know I I, I was embarrassed to hmm. for a long time. I just thought when you when you talked about yourself. When you talked about, um, you know, the relative truth, the mm. dubious truth, yeah. even of the, the, the narration mm. and the observation. I was thinking about uh, Elizabeth Alexander, the poet, and what she said to me about poetry. Is that poetry, you know, it doesn't tell you what's true in terms of, like, what happened, mm. but it does get at undergirding truths. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I think... Uh, so now after kind of having immersed myself in you, um, I actually think of you as much as a writer, mm-hmm. as a songwriter, 
or as a musician? Well, uh, that's interesting. I mean, uh, I, I think I think my my wife uh, would say the same thing, uh, has said the same thing. Um, you know, my orientation, my sense of self uh, as a creative person, you know, everything sort of funnels through song. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I came, at, I come at everything through song uh, in, in some way. That's still like, you know, how I might, I mean, I write poetry. I mean, there's things that show up that I understand are not songs. Sometimes mm-hmm. I can turn a poem into a song. But I would also say that, you know, most, if not all of your songs are poetry or story. You know, they, they are mm-hmm. songs and they are um, other Things that we identify as other forms of writing, epistolary, mm-hmm. right? Narrative. Sure. Well, you know, I have to say, as a you know, as a as a songwriter, it's, I've always noticed that it's a very, uh, it's a it's a uh, dubious uh, compliment when if a journalist, for instance, ever says to you, you know, you're not just a songwriter, you're a poet, and I think you know, I know that you that you're being kind, and I, but I also know that what you're really saying is, those are pretty words, and I have no idea what you're going on about. Uh, when people usually liken song lyrics to poetry it's because they've been confused by them really oh well that's not I, i'm not I saying mean. that about yeah. you uh, yeah. i think you're a different you must yeah. be a different kind of listener and reader yeah. for sure uh, i'm just saying that the idea uh that that people would would recognize how poetry works on song yet there's a great distinction between how a poem can and does work mm-hmm. and and the really unique way that that, that, that a song that a has song works. Yeah. Uh, power and authority. But I also think that for any of us who use words um, in a way that, that strikes uh, a reader or a listener as abstract, um, can be really frustrating to people who aren't, aren't readers of poetry, for instance. I, I, I feel like I ha- a lot of people have tr- problems with my songs because they don't understand them and they, and they are mystified that something put into words hasn't, you know, the mere fact that you've taken an experience and given words to them should mean that you've already decoded this for me, you know. Mm-hmm. The fact that you might be using words to to make smoke and, you know, conjure smoke into a room or blur the lines uh, of, of, of some understanding um, deliberately like, like a photographer might use shadow, um, it, it's confusing to people who aren't culturally trained to, to be... Uh, um, to enjoy being confused, I right. should say, because but, I, I love a lot of songs when I don't have one idea what's going on. In well, it. right, but see, and I think that's yeah. what intrigues me yeah. is the kind of the adventure and the mystery of writing that you're very aware of as you write your songs. Well, mystery that, is the word. Yeah. yeah. That that you are you give voice to something that you didn't know you thought, and that you may have to. Mm. Spend some time figuring out what it means. It's very mysterious and wonderful. Well, it is mysterious. I mean, um, and I think as you know, anybody who who lives any kind of cre- is devoted to a creative life. But 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 not only. I mean, any of us alive. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we're really called to, not to dispel mystery, but to abide it. You know, to engage it, and that doesn't mean. Um, necessarily making sense out of it. It's just understanding that there's a big part of this that is inherently and beautifully and romantically mysterious has to be and always shall be. Um, and and I don't write to articulate a thought that I've had. I, I really don't think that way. Yeah, so like I've had this idea, now I need to put this into three verses that rhyme so that people can carry it away easily and, yeah. and enjoy my thoughts. Uh, you know, I, I, I write to discover. Yeah. And if I'm 
engaged by what that writing has become, then I try to think about what, you know, you know, might it engage anybody else. But I don't, but the impulse to write is not, is not the idea of communicating something to somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's to just, you know, um, try to put my finger on it and, and hear it, you know. Yeah, I mean, some of the ways you've written about that process, uh, you know, again, they kind of, they remind me of the way, the, about the way novelists write about the process of writing. You know, you've written, <clears throat> there are many ways a, strong, a song can take shape and they can always be different. They need only to be finally a living thing unto themselves. Um, or, you know, some of so much that, that writing a line is and like, that the opening line of a song might come to you like a book falling open. Yeah, well, yeah, and that, that's that adventure. That well, again, it's the, it's the it's the idea that that even as you're writing, um, you know, you're 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 not trying to re-articulate uh, a finished thought that's that stands, you know, fully formed in your mind. You know, you're you're, you're writing to, you know, to to discover what it might be. I mean. Um, I assume that maybe you know uh, the poet Jane Hirschfield. You know mm-hmm. her work at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a great admirer of hers, and um, we've never met face to face, but we've become great pen pals. She's um, a, an amazing. She's an incredibly gifted woman in, in her ability to to talk about the way that poetry works, even and and not have it ruin um, how she encounters it. I, I think that's a that's a particular balance that she maintains. But she was writing. Um, to me recently about that very real notion that the the poem has an intelligence that the poet does not have. You know? mm, yeah. And I think that's absolutely like that. true for the mm-hmm. song. I mean, I write things all the time that, you know, I don't know that I believe until I see it. Um, I certainly write things that, that, that my characters, and, that a character in a song believes that I, I'm not sure that I do, but I know that it's authentic to that character. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's authentic to the song, and I don't give a thought to whether it's authentic to me or not. Yeah. Can you think of a of an example of that happening recently? I'm just. Well. Well, certainly. Um, uh, even there, if it's even if it's something uh, you still don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, there's a song on civilians. It's it's a long one. It's called Our Song. Um, it's the one if you've heard it that starts off the the, the narrator of the song. Uh, believes that he has seen Willie Mays um, in in uh, in an aisle of the Home Depot, yeah. and that that opening line just sort of spoke itself to me when I was driving one day. I mean, literally, I just heard that. You know, I saw Willie Mays in a Scottsdale Home Depot. I just thought it was a funny point of entry. I had no idea to what it referred. And you weren't even standing in Home Depot <clears throat> seeing not. somebody who looked like Willie Mays came to you that way. Okay. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have asked me. Yeah, no, like, I, that's kind like of what this. I imagined. Well, when that record yeah. was out and I was doing a lot of press for it, uh, many interviews began with, did you? <laughs> you know, <It's laughs> yeah. like, wouldn't it ruin everything for you if I had, yeah. you know? Um, but I'll just say that, that I'm following uh, this, this, this narrator's story. And I remember, uh, when I first wrote that, I wrote it on an airplane the next day, so 4th of July. When the idea first entered my consciousness, I pushed it away because you frequently only get one chance to uncork the bottle. Hmm. And if you're not somewhere where you can you know, manage it, you dismiss it. Um, the spring uncoils one time to get the, whatever that first thing is. Hmm. And 
I was packing for a trip. My family and I were going to visit my in-laws in northern Michigan for 4th of July. I didn't have time to, to hear what Willie Mays might be doing in the Home Depot. Um, so when I wrote it, it was just sort of six pages of, of prose. I wasn't thinking of it. It wasn't in song form. Um, but I didn't understand you know, what it meant and where it was going. I just knew that this person speaking was really angry. And there was nothing in the song or in the in the original six pages of prose. A- angry was, and sad, I think, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, demoralized. Yes, and, demoralized. And, and hurt yeah. and very fearful. Because it was not just a reflection of, on seeing Willie May. It was a reflection on our culture. It was where we, where I believed, I mean, and I say this in retrospect, um, I wasn't thinking about this at the time, mm-hmm. that that it was about, you know, what it means to, to be asked to celebrate uh this country, and, and in that moment, you know, when we were, you know, in a, engaged in a, as far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, a criminal war. And here I was on a, on a packed Fourth of July plane, um, you know, with a bunch of revelers and, and thinking, you know, if not completely consciously about, you know, how I was supposed to celebrate or what I was allowed to celebrate or what, what are we celebrating if we are? What does it mean, you know, to stand at this moment and try to hold ourselves up as... as um, but say a little bit about how the person of Willie Mays <clears throat> set that line of thinking in motion. Well, I'm, Willie I, Mays and the Home Depot. Well, I guess just the fact that, you know, you know I was born at the tail end of 1960 and, uh, you know... Willie Mays was a seminal figure and, you know, not only possibly the greatest baseball player that ever lived, uh, but, but he was, you know, he was a sort of an image of, of this great integrity, you know. Um, I mean, that's how so many of us saw him and not just me. Um, I've read so many people of my generation and older who talk about, you know, what he meant, you know, walking around in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I suppose... And I've been asked about it, you know, the way that Paul Simon uses, you know, Joe DiMaggio in fleeting reference in Mrs. Robinson, yeah. you know, sort of to, to sort of yeah. get at the same thing. I'm much more long-winded, as you now know. Um, <laughs> you know, my song is seven minutes long, and I think Paul's beautiful opus is about, you know, two and a half minutes or something like that. But the idea that he stands there to re- reflect back on us, um, you know, who we are and, and how different we may be. Uh, uh, be from how we picture ourselves, hmm. you know. We mm-hmm. think that that's who we are, and we tr- and we find out that we're, in fact, you know, we're not that at all, and 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 never have been. Yeah, and I think seeing him in Home Depot is kind of like also that how we turn people into symbols, and then the the disconnect between the symbol and when you see that it's like when you're a, a kid and you run into your elementary school teacher <laughs> out at a restaurant, your whole world is <laughs> is turned upside down because yeah. they've stepped out of the frame yeah. of exactly how you need them to exist in this yeah. as this idea. Yeah. And I yeah, I guess to see an, an aging William Mays uh, looking at, you know, uh, garage door springs mm-hmm. um, is it, it, it would be a come down for some. Yeah. But um, I was trying to answer your question. I'm not sure I did a very good job of it. Your people will edit this up so beautifully Oh, yeah, don't later. worry. We'll edit. We'll yeah. edit. Yeah. Yeah, I listen well, to your raw feed. I know what happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I was just going to – just to answer yeah, your question, yeah. it's like, you know, I didn't know um, why Willie Mays stood there. I didn't understand that I was using a garage door spring as a metaphor that would come back and, and serve me so nicely, you know, uh, at the end of the song. It just – I just followed it, and it was as if that that was already 
mapped, you know, that yeah. had already been storyboarded out somewhere else, and I was facilitating it. But I didn't think for a minute that I was, um, you know, very cleverly using this iconic Right. figure as a metaphor and I didn't think about the metaphor of a of of how this spring needed to help us you know raise a, a door you know I it that's the intelligence of the song um that I didn't feel like I had anything to do with consciously so so how would how do you think about um the alchemy that does happen between you know we talked about you as a writer but you write songs, mm-hmm. and what is the what? How do words, you know, shift and change when music wraps around them, or they make their way inside music? Like, what? How do you think about that? Well, I think about that as little as possible in some in in some ways because it's, um, you know, it, there's a uh, an impulse that's that's purely fear based. That you know, if you if you try to understand too much about how that works, it will stop working. And yeah. I don't really think that any of this is that fragile. I'm not actually fearful of it, but I, it's something that 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 is absolutely, you know, mysterious. You know, why some, you know, some thought is seems to be musical thought. Um, like I said, some things show up as a poem, and I just understand that this is not something that would be musical coming out of my mouth. Um, even if it's thematically something that I might write a song about or might show up in a song, um, you know, there are certain words that I think I'll be writing and say, you know, if this is a poem, that's the right word. If it's a song, it's the wrong word because that's not a musical. Mm. You know, there's not a musical tonality to that word. Right. Or sometimes you need a word in a song that's abrupt and and derails um, the, the, the lyricism because there's a danger that listeners become complacent if things become just if all they are is beautiful um, they can also become invisible and mm. you know rhythmically you know there are ways in which words can can s- slow the process down and, and you might write something that's deliberately a little bit awkward to, to slow listeners and readers down so that they don't just blaze th- through it like they're you know they're, they're reading a grocery list mm, that's really interesting that's I think that's the kind of uh, analysis that most listeners to music wouldn't make. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of that mm-hmm. until you say it, and it's yeah. true. Well, um, you know, one of your uh, confederates was talking to me earlier this morning about about George Jones, and I was just remembering. I'm remembering now that um, at one point um, he was pitched uh, to sing a song that Paul Westerberg had written. One of your uh, favorite sons here in the in, in the Twin Cities, Paul Westerberg of the Replacements. His song "Here Comes a Regular" was pitched to George Jones, and and the word "fridge" is in the song. And George says, "I can't sing that song. <laughs> I could I could never sing the word fridge." That's the way I heard the story, anyway. Yeah. And I thought, well, of course not. To him, to um, to George, that's just that's not a, that's not a musical word. Yeah. And that's the you know. And not a beautiful word. No. No. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So. I really, really love Invisible Hour. Well, thank you. Your, as we're speaking here, it's your newest album. I'm, I'm so I'm in, intrigued by how we use, like, do you still, I think people still talk about records and albums. Mm. Um, those of us who make them, We haven't cast those you. things aside, right? We can't. Mm. It's not the same as. Oh, we still say album, you know, because it's a, yeah. it's a deliberate statement. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, uh, we understand album, you know, as a as a durable 
form format, just like you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, a haiku is a durable format. The blues form as as a, as a songwriting form is durable. Okay. And the hour and a half movie, the three act play, you know, an album still yes. ten to twelve songs. We know how to hear that and still follow yeah. the, the arc. Right. You know? So so Invisible Hours, the latest one, and. Um, and I imagine that we can play lots of music from that, and you know, it's, it's going to be so it's so beautiful to produce. It'll be beautiful to produce with music. Um, um, and I really want to talk about you know you've said you kind of said after the fact, writing about it after the fact that you realized it was about marriage, uh, and you know the re- but really the redemptive power of love in the face of fear. Um, I mean, to me, I don't know. It was interesting. To listen, knowing that you said it was about marriage, to me, um, if it's about marriage, it's just marriage as a most intense way to talk about the complexity of human beings together. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I realized, uh, I thought after the fact that it might have been, uh, uh, it was probably cavalier of me to suggest in the liner notes any way that people might actually listen to the songs. You know, I offered that thought because I had it. Um, and I didn't have it until after I'd made the record that I thought, well, in the same way that the album that preceded it, I decided after the fact that time was the thread that connected all the songs. You know, that in some way all the characters were grappling with, you know, with time. And after I finished Invisible Hour, I thought, well, all the characters at some, at some, in some way are, you know, challenging themselves with with commitment to somebody mm-hmm. or they are bereft of of a commitment and and desperately in need of one mm-hmm. but looking at it from either way either side you're still you're still talking about you know the way in which a you know real commitment you know informs and and changes all of us yeah um, and also i think how real commitment is so exacting and never never complete Right. I mean, or, or how it's always this, uh, I mean, you know, there's this, this, just these two lines from the grave angels, you know, we are gathered together, we are hidden from view. And that's, those two things are always true, even in the most intimate relationship. Sure. And, and I mean, I, th- I think one thing that you're, that, that you're getting at is that, and I think, I mean, I said it somewhere, maybe it's in those same liner notes, I can't remember, that this idea that, you know, um, uh, you know, love is a you know is a, is a verb, not a, a marriage is a verb, not a noun. It's it's not something you did. It's not something you possess. It's something that you engage in, and you have to be, you know, you know to be you know you are being married all the time. Mm-hmm. You didn't get married. You know, mm-hmm. you, you are in the process of being married. You know, uh, you know, and I, I am as I sit before you, even though I'm a long way from home. Um, I'm I'm asked to be. Constantly engaged in being married, yeah. um, and I think that's something that's. It sounds like a subtle distinction, and it's not subtle at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess, I, and, and then that's where it came, that's where all this comes from in you. And then I guess you know part of this mystery and power that we've talked about of writing mm-hmm. or songs is, you know, as somebody who's not married, mm-hmm. still listen, listening to these songs, or you know, and has mm-hmm. been married. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's, they completely speak to me too and it's just about this complexity of relationship mm-hmm. because if we you know those of us who don't have a marriage mm-hmm. still have all these other relationships where we grapple with this reality of 
being gathered together and hidden from view at the same sure. time. Sure, and I'm not just talking about you know formalized you know legal marriage. Yeah, of I course, know. you know yeah. it's it's. I think if it if it works at all, it's it's you know that idea of you know if you are. Um, I mean, I've said before that you know I I, I sort of accept my own marriage as you know uh, absolute fact of of my person. I mean. Um, and I think of that like I look at my relationship uh, to my to my children or to my uh, my, my my brother David for an example. <clears throat> I could have a big uh, falling out with my brother David, though I never have, ever. Really? Um, no, I never have. Um, uh, but it wouldn't change the fundamental fact that he's my brother. Even if we were estranged, God yeah. forbid, that would be true. And I think of that, uh, you know, f- at least for me, that's how I see my marriage. It's just that. No matter what happens, that has become a fundamental um, absolute of you know the fabric of my being, and mm-hmm. I don't know how to I don't know how to see it uh, otherwise. I don't know how to see myself without that component. Mm-hmm. I don't know myself without that piece of that uh, puzzle in place. Just like I don't know myself not being a parent. Yeah. I almost don't remember what it's like. Like I, I was telling, uh, you know, I've said to my wife Melanie. Uh, I can think back to our married days before children, and it's almost like I I knew who our children were. They just hadn't arrived. But in retrospect, I feel like I don't know myself without knowing them. I know. I said that to one of my best friends the other day because we're we're at this place where our children are growing up and leaving. But I said, I can't. I cannot imagine who I would be with without them. Mm-hmm. Like I can't even imagine that person. It's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to read these lines because they're so beautiful. This is also from the Grave Angels song. I take this to be holy, if futile, uncertain, and dire. Our union of fracture, our dread everlasting, this beautiful, desperate desire. The cloud darkens to harrow, it crosses your heart like hand, but it's cool like the shadow of all that we've seen by the light that we can't understand. What's it like for you to hear words like that read back to you? Uh, well, um, I happen to like those, so uh, thanks. Uh, uh, I'm having, I'm having a, a, a perfectly fine time hearing you uh, give voice to them. Um, I hear a different uh, musicality in them coming you know, from you than if I were to try to read them, mm. which is which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, do you know what those words mean now? Like, I think I do, uh, and I'm I'm really, Krista. I would never try to be coy with you. I'm not at all. Yeah. Um. I, you know, at a certain point, I think you know my my interpretation after the fact doesn't have any more authority than than, than, than yours or anybody's. Right. And um, I really do th- think that I come back to them later and say, <clears throat> if I separate, you know. You know what I can remember about where I was and how I thought. You know what I was feeling when I was working on that, mm-hmm. and just try to hear it as a thing unto itself. Now I have, I have a different response to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I like the acknowledgement at the end of that stanza that you read about you know sort of the idea that you know that 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 we live among shadow, but but the light that creates the shadow is is absolutely. Um, in so so many ways, unknowable to us, and yet it's you know it's a source of 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 all that moves around us and and makes things move around us, yeah. and yet there is just this part of it that is, you know, uh, paramount and completely unknowable. Mm-hmm. 
that thing you said um, about your interpretation not being any more valid than anyone else's once the song is out there in the world. That's so interesting. I mean, that's part of that mystery of, of writing, isn't it, too? Well, it's back to letting go of this idea that you're not going to – of the impulse of trying to explain anything to anybody. Yeah. Once people ask you, you know, what does a song mean? I, I, and yeah. I always – my first thought is, well, it, it just means that it is. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds really evasive, and, and I, don't, I, I don't really mean for it to be. I just think, you know – it's not like I can give you a subtitle that 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 will explain that better. If I, honestly, if if I could have said that in a more meaningful way, I hope I would have. Um, that just that's just how that speaks. I don't mm-hmm. know how to get to it any clearer than that. Mm-hmm. But but I also think you're you're talking about the fact that there's that there's reality and dignity in however it lands, like whatever meaning it lands with in mm-hmm. any in any ears in any life. Well, in the same way that, you know, um, you know, when Thomas Merton said, you know, everything that is is holy, um, takes away any impulse to want to, to judge anything, uh, to, to be anything other than sacred. You know, the only thing that's, that's, that's other is how we uh, choose to uh, dishonor those things. But, you know, nothing by its nature is not sacred, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, even the most, you know, deadly thing, um, you know. Only is anything other than sacred if we, um, you know, elect to 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 be, mm-hmm. you know, less with it. Right. How we are in relationship with it. Yeah. Um, I think Thomas Merton's in the water these days. Is he's, he? Yeah, he is. He's everywhere. Yeah. Well, he's also there's also some anniversary coming up, like his hundredth birthday. Oh, is that this year? Yeah. Something like that. But I, I, I mean, I've seen you, I've seen you quote him in other places. I mean, I, I, I think I do want to. I want to talk to you about uh, God, sure. which is uh, which many people would hear what you just said about that light that's ever present. Mm-hmm. You know that that might be a way of talking about God. I sense that in the course of your life and your writing, you've you've had different a different relationship with using that word, but then sure it's kind have. of surprised you that that it it's become more overt and more present and more. Well, part of it, you know, you just live long enough and you, and you really do learn to care less about what anybody might think about what you might offer. Yeah. That's, that's one of the, the great bonuses of, of surviving, you know. Yeah. Um, is, you know, um, yeah, for a while I think I, w- I really would have resisted anything that felt like I was directly referencing uh, so-called God, you know, and how you, anybody might, you know, perceive God. Um, and maybe that's because, like I was saying earlier, I was sort of I was really at odds uh, with that growing up. I, I had this, you know, people that I love dearly and respect wholly, mm-hmm. um, telling me that this is how things are, and I'm sitting there believing fully that I don't believe that, yeah. or I don't believe it that way. So I always felt a little at odds. It was a, a long time before I thought I was allowed to have an opinion other. Just like I listened to a lot of music uh, when I was young, and and try to hear the good in all of it. I didn't think I was allowed to judge it. Mm. You know, my elders who were clearly light years away from me, already out in the world recording music and playing music, and um, I didn't have a right to judge that. You get a little bit older and say, well, I, uh, I find something about myself by deciding what, what's meaningful to me and what isn't. I, and you start, you start making judgments, and there's, you know, um, you, you know, we're all a bit compromised once we start doing that uh, yeah. to a certain degree. But... You know, I grew up struggling 
and I came into my adult life struggling with um, how to frame whatever my spiritual uh, interior life might be, but very much in the same way that I struggle with 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 my with my nationalism for that matter. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm no more comfortable identifying as a contemporary Christian. I never I never have. I never would. Uh, and I have the same problem identifying as an American, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And I can, and I love this country, but I'm absolutely at odds with a lot of things about it. Um, and I think I should be. I think I'm called to be. And mm-hmm. uh, I say, well, look, look, I know that that I was raised and and Christianity was my vocabulary, my cultural vocabulary, um, in the same way that you know I look through the lens of an American of a certain era. And that's a fundamental to my right. worldview. And the American songbook, as you say, yeah. has formed you as an artist. So, um, at the same, you know, but at the, at the same moment that I that I blanch at at identifying as an American, I immediately think about all the uh, you know Americans who are so beloved, uh, you know, beloved to me, who have changed everything, you know, who, you know, just just by one example, you know, the great. African American folk, blues, jazz artists who answered absolute brutality and indignity with beauty. Mm-hmm. I mean, that changed my life. That recognition of like this is a response. You know, you can respond like this or you can respond like that. And that changed me when I when I saw the truth of that. Hmm. So um you know, of course, you know, back to my brother David, he said, you know, his biggest regret in not taking his children to church is that they won't be able to hear Bob Dylan and understand all the biblical references. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. It's like that's a real disservice as a parent, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, it's interesting that you, you, you mentioned both of those things together because it was in the notes to your, to the Civilians album in 2007, which had those mm. overtones of wrestling with one's country. Um, you know, just wrote in those liner notes, speaking of which I have noticed with surprise and only in retrospect how often God is mentioned throughout this 12-song cycle, and he must be surprised as well. Um, you, you went on to say, you know, you recognize in his many appearances one among us who stretches like... Oh, okay, so I have to read the whole thing. Um, <laughs> I recognize in his many appearances, though, not the God of my Methodist raising who sat judging tennis balls in or out from high on a perch, but one among us who stretches like the net itself, wholly visible and there but to frame the attempt. That's pretty great. This is a theological statement. Yeah, I probably stole it from somewhere and I can't remember where. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, it's uh, Krista, it's one of those things. I, I, I see how many of the musicians, writers, poets that I have, um, been devoted to my entire adult life, who who are in no uncertain terms grappling with their spiritual lives, mm-hmm. you know whether that's Flannery O'Connor or or, or, or Merton or um, James Wright or uh, uh, you know Rilke who who's who probably gets name checked on your show more than almost yeah, anybody. That's true. Yeah, um, you know I I stand in that line. I mean that's one of the things that that brought me to your program. I mean, uh, you know, Melanie has been a devoted listener, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think when I first heard Joanna Macy on your show was when I really, um, really sort of understood um, what your intention here was and, you know, what an incredible conversation that was and her very particular and interesting uh, 
life experience and how she encounters, you know, uh, Rilke. But, but, you know, the writers who every single thing they write, and I, I, I hope this doesn't sound terrible, um, I've gotten to the point where I don't, I don't think I finish any song. I don't, I don't call any song finished. And again, this isn't a conscious thing. I just something I recognize. If if I don't think that it somehow is vibrating with 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 that awareness of how we live in spite of the inevitable, which is what all spirituality is, is how do we how do we how do we come into being? How do we live fully um, in the constant conscious knowledge that 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 we won't always mm-hmm. uh, and and you know how do you invest in any kind of idea of 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 real uh you know commitment you know in the face of 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 everything being finite yeah and i think that every in some way every song that i write you know is is awake to that uh, you know awareness of that disparity and uh, I, I don't think anything else interests me at some at some level yeah, there's this. What is it? Uh, oh, you know the song that's in uh, that's in this album. Every sorrow. Mm. I mean that you know that's you know every, after every sorrow comes a joy, but every sorrow knows one more. I, I you know it ends mm. after every sorrow comes a joy, and every story knows one more. I. And that's the gritty kind of manifestation of this struggle mm. tension, this big cosmic tension, right, that we kind of live with in all of our days and all of our relationships. And Well, we're sort of seduced into thinking that, like, you know, you know, here's life and then there's these, you know, these bad things that, 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 that can happen that are, are like obstacles that just fall into your road as if the obstacle is not the road. You know, we, we want to think right, that that... Right. that you know, all things being equal, you know, we should be, um, you know, um, content all the time and would be, except for these pesky flies that want to yeah. ruin every picnic, you know, as if that isn't what the picnic is, you know. It's that idea that, you know, if you cut yourself off from great sorrow, you also cut yourself off from great joy. Um, it's a simple enough idea that if you don't really understand, it's a simple um, enough you know, idea. It's a hard well, enough reality. You know, if yeah. you know, we only know any such thing as light because of darkness. I mean, it's fundamental. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, if you exercise your angels, your you know, you exercise your demons, your angels will leave too. You know, I mean, that's that's hmm. that's sort of the common wisdom, I think. Yeah. You do, you do use the imagery of angels a lot. Weaves in and out. Yeah, it's probably a bad habit. <clears throat> I mean, they're such faithful images. You yeah. Know? Well, and they're different. I mean, the grave angels of that is the title of a song. And that is... The angels have gotten nicer, by the way. You know, I, I have a have song they? on a, an album called Fuse from uh, 1999, I think. And, the, and there's a song called Angels, and they're really nasty in that one. Also, here's what plain speak: bloodlusty angels looking to rumble in town. What are what are you what are you? Uh, I mean, in this sparrow song, which I love so much, I wait for one grave angel, and I know she waits for me. Um, what is that? Do you know what are the angels? What is that image about? Um, I could guess. I I I really think it's just sort of, you know uh, uh, of an awareness of of uh, of all the authority that exists outside of us. 
you know, of being consciously aware that there's there are other things at play than 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 than, than what I put into motion and mm-hmm. and and what I control, which is nothing. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I actually control is nothing. Uh, there's the illusion of control. Um, you know, I, I guess the angels are just this concept of 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 needing to visualize um, some some way in which. Uh, the, the higher powers might be loving and benevolent, even when we don't deserve it. You know, um, is but are angels? Um, angels aren't God. Are they something more connected to us? Oh, I think uh, you know. In my scheme, I think they're much more earthly. Though they're very well connected, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and what, I mean, but even just like grave angels, which. Which recurs in this latest album. What is yeah, I, you know, I, I don't do that on purpose, but I like. I start to think that songs belong on an album together yeah. when they start sharing yeah. uh, images and vocabulary. I, I start to think that they're, they they come out of the same movie, you know. And I right. don't I don't tamp that down. I like when those things just kind of keep, you know, that same actor keeps walking through the through the same through the, through the different scenes. Yeah, that's you know? cool. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think the angels, may, you know, maybe you know, kind of in in, in literary terms, um, you know, being a bit of the brokers between, you know, uh, the, the earthly and the divine. You know, mm-hmm. they got a foot in both streams. Yeah, I think you. I think that's a hangover from your Methodist upbringing. I'm sure that it you is. Know, you know, I have it from my Baptist upbringing. You try to get rid of these there. things. You know, when I when I moved to the Midwest from the South. Uh, it, I think that was right at the beginning of fourth grade. But as I started to, you know, to, to, to get older, I really, really uh, resisted my Southern heritage. I wasn't proud of it at all. Mm-hmm. I, the things that I associated, that I noticed that other people associated with the South, um, were, were, were not things I was proud of. It took me a really long time, you know, um, and and courtesy of, of of artists that I greatly admire, you know, I, I was I was very much ashamed of of. Of the images that 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 came to mind when I started thinking of the Deep South in the '60s, and the ones that just come into your mind when I say that as well, yeah. um, until I realized, you know, well, um, uh, you know, North Carolina, where I'm from, you know, Nina Simone's also from there. You know, it's not just Carl Rove. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, John Coltrane's from there. Thelonious Monk's from there. Right. Um, I, I I thought I was allowed a, a different way into it. Yeah, you know, a different um, uh, appreciation for what for for what has grown out of that mm-hmm. part of it country. But I also think that, um, you know, when I said that's a hangover, I mean, that sounds a little dismissive, but mm. those that imagery, mm. which after all has so informed the songs of Bob Dylan, yeah. among other things, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare, yeah. um, uh, there's something to it, right? Yeah. It's something I recognize, you know, um, recently my wife uh, made the observation, I just played a show in Los Angeles, and we were sitting... Uh, out uh, over coffee the next morning, and she said, "It never occurred to me until last night that you're a Southern writer." And I, she said, "It hit me like a ton of bricks last night that you're a Southern writer." And I was like, "Well, I, I don't know what you mean by that." And you know, uh, and she's from Detroit, right, Michigan? She, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but and I know that you know, there's there's very old world imagery that 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 harkens maybe deliberately. Um, to a different time, and it and it pr- probably reads southern because it, there's a certain formality. You know, I once, you know, in my early days, used the word sh- uh, robe in a song, which I would never do again. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know that word. It's it's a it's like a it's a chest of drawers. 
in, it's used in To Kill a Mockingbird. She asked me to bust oh, up an yeah, old Schiffer okay. robe. Right. And to me, it just had the right number of syllables. Yeah. But I know that it also sounds it's like... It's actually a pretty word. It sounds Southern. It sounds... And from another time. It sounds yeah. from a, a, a time yeah. that's long gone. Yeah. It sounds like what To Kill a Mockingbird looks like. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sometimes there are just images that are more reliable than others. And you were, you were asking about angels a minute ago. We, we kind of think we know what they are. Even people who, who, who are skeptical, it's a reliable image mm-hmm. um, as opposed to – just to give the example um, – I wrote a song a long time ago called Like She Was a Hammer, and I make a reference uh, uh, in the song to um, Roosevelt's funeral in the street. And I remember when I was first writing that song, at first I thought it should be Kennedy's funeral in the street. But the Kennedys are not reliable images yet. We're still trying to decide what we think of the Kennedys ultimately. but. Roosevelt, I think, is a pretty safe bet. We know what Roosevelt means. We knew what he meant to a lot of people. We know what his death meant to a lot of people. So I can reference that and and feel that that's, you know, if the song survives for a while, it'll still mean what that means. Um, as opposed to like my friend Loudon Wainwright, who once referenced O.J. Simpson in a song just because he used to, you know, do Hertz car commercials running through an airport and that was not a reliable image you know that doesn't mean the same thing anymore as an as an image just that's an easy example of it how that image is is now you know evolved into something into meaning something else for people and it can't work the same way but you think angels angels are reliable yeah Uh, but you complexify it so much i mean um i don't mean to but no no i think it's good i like it it's not Touched by an angel. No, 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 it's not touched by an angel. <laughs> um, yeah, so you and I are very close in age. I was, you know, we were both born in 1960, right? Mm-hmm. I was born in November. I was born, born in December. December. Yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, that was, I mean, I was actually born on the night Kennedy was elected president mm-hmm. and kind of was told by my Democratic father that I was his good luck charm. Mm. And then when he died, you know, what did wow. my good luck run out, right? But I also think those of us, you know, that was I'm just thinking about your complex relationship with the South. I mean, we we grew like all of our kind of we were just starting to take in world events and so much of it was just unbelievably tragic. It was personally tragic. Even the public events were personal tragedies. Well, interesting. I I think my earliest memory um at least, you know, I mean, and I, and I, I subscribe to, you know, when John Cage said, um, I don't, uh, the, the past doesn't influence me, I influence it. I know I'm constantly, you know, reimagining my past and assigning different significance to it. Um, it's completely in play all the time. Um, but I have a memory, um, and I think it's my earliest one, if it's accurate, of laying on the floor um, underneath the ironing board as my mother ironed and watched Kennedy's funeral on TV. Oh. And the reason I remember it, and I can remember looking up at the at the foam lining underneath her ironing board and understanding that she was upset yeah, and that somebody had died. Right. And I remember saying to her, um, does this mean you're going to die someday? And she said, yes, it does. And I said, and then I said, mm-hmm. Does that mean I'm going to die someday? She said, yes, you are, honey. Mm. Mm. Wow. But um, I, moved in, I moved to Atlanta after that and was living in Atlanta when Dr. King was killed. 
I mean, he was killed in Memphis, but he lived in Atlanta. His church was in Atlanta, of mm. course. And um, I have really visceral memory of that particular time. And that's part of what I was trying to distance myself from right. by the time I moved from Atlanta to Ohio. Um, and certainly as I got a bit older, um, you know, you know, more and more I, I, I tried to uh, erase my, my, my southern background from, you know, from my, from my sense of self. You know, yeah. I just didn't want to identify with that. Um, and it, it took a long time, you know, to be able to find, you know, how that, you know, is, is a significant part of who I am and, and to be, uh, I still don't I'd say I'm proud of my Southern upbringing. I'm, I'm proud of, uh, about a lot of things uh, about my upbringing, but I have a hard time still uh, connecting myself to the South as I understood it in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know? um, there's, you don't do much that's overtly political. I don't feel. I mean, but I. But you do care about public life, common life. I'm really, I'm really liking talking about common life these days. Um, you actually wrote a book about Richard Pryor, which, like, I don't even know how to talk about. That. <laughs> I don't think we're going to go into that. Yeah. It's just. But um, but you, but the scar, scar, which was 2011, the title track. Um, a scar was 2000. Was it? 2000, I think. 2000. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, right. That makes more sense. Um, I think I wrote that down incorrectly. But it begins with Richard Pryor addresses the nation. I mean, there are just these lines like, the blade of our outrageous fortune, like a parade, it cuts a path. Light shows on our foolish way and darkness on our aftermath. I mean, I don't know what you were writing about there, but to me it's very resonant with mm. I mean, that a song, Scar, is, a, is, a, is an anomaly for me uh, in that you know, I, I say I can I can count on less than a hand um, how many times I wrote, I've written a song and knew when I was writing it what I was writing about. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew I was addressing my own marriage in that song, um, and I, it it bothered me that I was. Mm-hmm. And I tried in every way to turn it into something else because I didn't like when I was uh, uh, partly because I thought it was good, and I didn't want it. I didn't want it to. I didn't want to ruin it for myself. Mm-hmm. And I thought. You know, I'm not sure I can abide. I'm not sure I can go where the song is needing me to go if I'm aware that I'm writing about my own life. If I'm recognizing myself in it now, I don't feel like I'm serving it. I feel like I'm in danger of expecting it to serve me, and I can't. Did you get uh, over that? Are you okay um, with it now? I did get over it. I just because I try to turn it into something else, and yeah. I have a a, a, hist- a, a a few of those experiences. And when you talk about the political, um. The album that I that I put out um, after 9-11, uh, you know, the, the first record I would have made after 9-11 was called Tiny Voices, which is a very chaotic sort of record and um, uh, sonically uh, uh, messy as it had to be and, and I think in a lot of ways very overtly political, though, um, again— um, I know that most people don't don't hear my songs and think they're they're overtly anything, mm-hmm. but I when I was writing it, I was aware that there was political content pushing itself into the songs, and I resisted that with every fiber of my being. There's a song in there called "Flag" that is about nationalism, and when I was writing the song, I knew there was something about it I thought was significant to me as a as a song, um, but I could not abide 
the way in which I thought it was so overtly political and of this moment. I don't. I, I have no interest in writing a topical song. Yeah. You know, and I thought it was threatening to be that, and I tried every way I could. Because I had a really great soul groove to it, and I didn't want to let go of that. So I kept trying to turn it into something else, um, make it about something else. Mm-hmm. Maybe I decided that you know the political aspect of it was, was, was metaphoric, and I was really talking about love. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, make, I couldn't sell that. It never <laughs> felt real. So at one point, I had to make the decision. Either I just you know, shit-can this thing completely, excuse me, or— just give into it and say, okay, this is what this song means to be. Um, how, you know, can I still serve it? You know, can I still be okay with it? Can I be at peace with it just being that, mm-hmm. if that's where it's going? Um, uh, and I, I'll just share that when I was, I, I was traveling an, a few years ago, I spent about three weeks traveling in Europe with Harry Belafonte, helping him, um, well, I, I first came into his orbit. He was asking for some 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 musical help when he was finishing the film documentary of his life. Uh, I have to be careful here because I could talk about this for about an hour because mm. a lot of mystical things happened to me surrounding uh, Mr. Belafonte. But well, just tell me one, maybe. Well, he's a very, as you know, he's a very politically, um, savagely politically active person, and God bless him. He's he's walked that walk his entire professional life. Mm-hmm. I'm so humbled by his his tenacity, his courage. You know, um, he's a remarkable person and a true blessing to be in his company for for extended period of time. Um, but one night we were up late in the hotel bar in Berlin when we were traveling together. And at a big table of people, a lot of conversations going on, he, he overheard me talking about this and saying that I, I didn't allow political content to, to surface in my songs. I wouldn't, I wouldn't abide it. And he stopped conversation and spoke in that whisper that everybody hears right. um, and really dressed me down about it and said, you know, uh, he didn't give a shit what, what, what I meant to say. Is what the song meant to say. I didn't have any right not to let the song say what the song needed to say, and I should take myself out of it. <laughs> and then he asked me if I wanted to walk home because we were in Berlin, of course. Wow. And he was, and he really challenged me, and I really did go back and think a lot about, um, the, you know, the inherent vanity of trying to of thinking at all about how a song made me look. Like, I don't like how this political song looks on me. Mm-hmm. I don't like what it says about okay. me. Um, and that, that as, a, as, a, as a writer, I was not allowed to have an opinion about that, or it was mm-hmm. a mistake to. It was a, diver- a distraction to have that opinion. I've had a few conversations lately with, um, you know, musicians who are different from you, but, but you know, the folk singers, or I mean, the Indigo Girls, right, talking about mm-hmm. how they... They and others they're in conversation with are, you know, wondering if they need to create that and new whatever our version of, would be of the tradition of, you know, Pete Seeger and the mm-hmm. the song, the music that went that was not just the soundtrack for the civil rights movement, but really powered it in many ways. Yeah. Well, you know, the danger in our culture is that anything that becomes ubiquitous becomes uh Frequently invisible and 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 then meaningless to people. And that's probably more true now than it was then. I mean, the it? fact that you walk into every single, you know, yeah. you know, 
you know, restaurant or, you know, retail store and there's music playing um, has, has rendered it for a lot of people yeah. uh, to be powerless to, to, to really work in their lives in any meaningful way. Mm. I mean, I mean, music is the ultimate authority to me in so, in so many ways. Ways that I can, ways that I think I know, and, and plenty of ways that I don't know. Yeah, um, that's but, a that's a hard truth to ponder for but me. But you know, we 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 are really in danger of, you know, uh, you know, we, we we've allowed it to be co opted to the degree that it has been, you know, um, you know, decommissioned as as the military people might say. Yeah. Um, and it's something mm-hmm. I've th- I've thought a lot about. And when I was traveling with Harry in Europe, uh, the film project that we were researching together, he wants to, to make a documentary about 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 violence, but most specifically about how the the hip hop movement, which he was instrumental in allowing to flourish, um, how it went from being a very communal uh, uh, tradition to 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 being so much about violence and degradation of women and degradation of self. And he went, went on this trip, and I was in his company in, in Paris and in Berlin and in London. He was meeting with the most significant hip-hop artists and challenging them. They thought they were being summoned to sort of be anointed by Harry. Right. And he sat there with cameras running. They had agreed to be interviewed, and he would begin by saying, "Why have you le- allowed your music to be co- your vocabulary to be co-opted?" Mm-hmm. It was uh, incredible. It was in, 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 amazingly intense, and and it was not comfortable. Um, and it was it was incredible to see because uh, you know Harry looks at the power of folk song in particular, yeah. and he's got a really great you know n- number of stories about how he became who he became. Um, you know, he never. Set out to be a singer, he was an actor. He was at the, at the new. He was in the new school in the dramatic workshop with Marlon Brando and B. Arthur and Tony Curtis. They were all in the same class. He was studying <laughs> to be an actor. He became a singer purely by sort of by accident. But the the political power and the unifying power of folk music in particular, and all folk music, which in his mind, and I agree with him, you know, hip-hop is, was folk music in that moment yeah. in that community. Yeah, yeah that's... Um, mm-hmm. that, that's his point of view. And, you know, you're, you're letting it be defanged. You, you know, you're letting its authority be, um, you know, co-opted and, and used against you. Hmm. And I think a lot of us have allowed that. Um, you know, I mean, popular music, what, what people think of as popular music, you know, what comes with the radio doesn't speak to my engagement with music any more than than uh, than than American Christianity, for that matter, speaks to my spiritual life. You know, it's a complete disconnect for me. And yet here I am, um, you know, participating as a as a you know in in the music business. But I'm I'm completely at odds with its uh, with its uh, with its priorities. There's that light and darkness always in interplay always. again. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 oh, I don't know what time it is. I really, we need to, I need to wind down. But um, so just coming back to this, this very notable uh, feature of your work of kind of a self-aware evolution, um, you know, and again, I mean, I'm going to read you some lines, and I have mm. no idea if that's what this you meant by it. But mm. the sparrow song, um, 
you know, it wasn't peace I wanted, so it wasn't peace I found. I wouldn't stand for reason, and it never would sit down. That's the kind of observation one makes about one's, that one's mm-hmm. only able to make mm-hmm. about oneself, whatever mm-hmm. the context of that was. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, here, what you're fi- you're, we're, we're both 54, right? Mm-hmm. And um, isn't it? And well, I guess I, I really liked, I like, I appreciate how you are being so self aware about this process of moving through life and getting to. A place where you can see things you couldn't see before. Well, um, it's essential. Um, you know, how close any of us get to it on any given day, uh, you know, is up for grabs. You know, some days, uh, you know, I feel, um, you know, I feel like I have a very good aerial view, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm the lifeguard above the pool, and I can see everything um, for better and worse. Uh, plenty of days I, you know, I feel like I'm, you know, chin deep in the middle of that water, and and, right. you know, um, and I don't know how deep it is, and and I'm, I am a, in fact, a lousy swimmer, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, that's more like it. Um, you know, I have the desire to be aware. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But I mean, that's half the battle. I mean, right. I was just—I kind of feel like you, like me, are fascinated by this process. I mean, like, I was—I was talking to my daughter the other day because I was—I wasn't complaining about something about being older, but she heard it as complaining. I was just—I was mm-hmm. noting something about being older, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Oh, mom, I wish you just—you know—just wish you wouldn't, you know, think about those things." And I said, "Yeah," I said, "I said I don't think you understand." I used to hear people talk about older people talk about being older, mm-hmm. and I, it disturbed me. I felt like, why are they focusing on that? Mm-hmm. Like they were highlighting what was wrong. And now I realize that the process of growing older is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about it because it's really interesting. Yeah, and I think you, you as we get older, you, you come into some true ownership. You know, um, I think when you're young, uh, you're you're in inclined to believe, invited to believe that you, had, you couldn't have done anything significant enough to, 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 to own an identity, a point of view. Uh, um, and then you get to a point where you say, well, I, th- I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm basically who I am now. Yeah. And, and, and whatever this is, however I can, you know, work from this as a, as a base of operations, you know, this finite mass, um, you know, I'm going to. And there's a liberation that comes with getting to a point where you think, yeah. You know, I'm not waiting, you know, for that, you know, for that next great shoe to drop. You know, both the shoes may be laying here and this might be what what there is. And um, there's terrific uh, liberation in 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 acknowledging, you know, what is and not living perpetually uh, as if, you know, you know, there's that 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 expression that 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 maybe is attributed to uh, uh, the study of Zen where, you know, um, people who are depressed are living in the past. People who are anxious are living in the future. Only people living in the present are at peace. Hmm. You know that idea of actually, you know, seeing in real time this. And you know, our culture does not know how to encourage that kind of thinking. We don't. We don't know how to teach young people. I don't believe to to think about. You know, everything is is about later. You know, I'll yeah. watch my. My, my dear daughter going through her senior year of high school and everything's been about, yeah. or last year in particular, 
you know, everything about SAT scores and everything. It's like, you know, you know, you're having an experience right now yeah. that, that I hope is not completely lost on you because everybody is, have, has you so anxious about, about what next, you know. Um, yeah. You're invited just to check things off a list, just to say that you'd, you've done them, um, as opposed to, to actually having experience and, and giving that any value. We don't know how to value yeah. um, experience for its own sake. Yeah, I mean, and here's this great— I mean, nobody goes to college except for the job they think they're going to get at the other side oh, of I know. it. Well, you know? I know. I mean, here's, here's some great, a great line from uh, Slide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm learning more than I intended. Try not to, though I might. <laughs> We're dying to be other, but we kill not to become. Grief sides with glory. They laugh deep into the night. Learning more than they intended. Try not to, though they might. Mm-hmm. I, I do so think, wise. It's I so do beautiful. think we, do, you know, there's only a certain amount we really want to know. I mean, I really <laughs> believe so. Um, uh, it, 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 it'd be, you know, we, we think it'd be impossible to, to, to continue, you know, if, if, if we actually had the teacher's edition of the book, you know, with the answers in the back. You know, just by one example, you yeah. know, if you knew when you were going to die and how, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't live. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this only works. You know, we can only value this because it's finite, um, uh, and and that's another great disparity of you know of our uh, that our particular modern culture I think doesn't know how to really um, you know embrace. You know. Yeah, and and it's also just a kind of inborn contradiction in us. It's mm. it's this weird human condition. Well, we're all gonna, we, we all know we're going to die, but we've made a pact with each other to. To pretend that we don't know that until absolutely necessary. Yeah. So even when your ninety-one-year-old aunt dies, you go, "Oh my God, she she uh, died." Yeah. You know, like yeah. you know, did you think she was gonna? But know? I think even, um, you know, that place of being at peace with this, with what is, which which does become easier with age. Um, it's not that it makes you get everything, start getting everything right, but maybe it opens you to learning more than you intended. Right? It just makes yeah. that a little bit less painful, less surprising, well, also, and I more we, welcome when it comes. And we jettison a lot of the distraction that's taken up a lot of space on your, on, you know, on your hard drive. Yeah. Um, that 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 you know, you can really clear the field a bit, you know, and say, yeah. you know, this. I, I mean, I'm I'm ashamed to think in my early professional life how much I how much time I wasted and how much agony I allowed. Um, you know, based on on being treated poorly by an industry that advertises itself and 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 brags about how poorly they treat people. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just a fact. But you still took it personally. I took it personally, and yeah. I wasted a lot of time. I spent it, I spent a lot of, um, you know, I spent a lot of you know significant time uh, hurt over uh, you know all the ways in which I was not being acknowledged you know, by the people with whom I was trying to be in business. And I look back now and just think, you know, what, a, you know, how, how did I not see through that, you know? Yeah, but that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd read books, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd heard other stories of musicians who, mm-hmm. who that I admired t- terrifically who are much more gifted than, 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 than myself, um, you know, and who suffered much more indignity than, I, than I've ever been asked to suffer. Um, and yet, you still you, you, we we push on as if we're as if we're supposed to be exempt, and then we're shocked when we when we learn that we're not. I mean, you know, yeah, and and also there's something really lovely 
um, about you being a musician who's been around and you know has a, um, a great deal of success uh, and is writing about a, a long-standing successful marriage, right? Mm. I mean, that shouldn't be surprising and exceptional, mm. but it is, yeah. right? It's yeah. really it's a great. It is great. Um, it's just this strange world we inhabit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm a I'm a professional musician in in in. Uh, and I work within a culture that sort of suggests in ways both, you know, uh, subtle and overt that 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 the goal is the ultimate goal is to be a celebrity. And and those are really separate pursuits. Um, sometimes great musicians, even sometimes not so great musicians, become celebrities. Um, that's a really different occupation. You know, I know some celebrities. Uh, I, I, I understand you know the way in which it, that's its own job and and you know the mistake is for anybody to think that 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 we we, we can only value the work you know if we if if it if it puts up you know the kind of numbers that 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 would you know make you not be able to walk the street comfortably yeah you know, i know we don't know how so strange, um, isn't it? to to value um you know I always trace it back to like when the movie Jaws happened. You know, once one movie made that kind of money, then every movie was expected to at least attempt to make that kind of money, and then and then the stakes changed as far as the the you know the studio culture of of, of filmmaking. And once you know uh, American popular music, I mean, once you know anything that grew out of the folk or the rock tradition, and the rock grew out of the folk tradition, mm-hmm. anything that grew out of that tradition became extraordinarily successful, then everything is now b- judged by that scale. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how successful are you? Um, it's all about, you know, it's all about your numbers. That sounds like a very naive thing to share in this conversation. But you know, it still goes back to the fact that, you know, not every, you know, uh, album, for instance, has to have sold 10 million or even a million copies to have been worth while right you know it can have terrific meaning to a, to to a small number of people and have been worth doing um, yeah. and and there are analogies for that in in every field i like that you know there's this biblical phrase that's always stayed with me that's one of these pieces of truth you know this this calling to develop eyes to see and ears to hear mm. the idea that what's most obvious yeah not always what's most worthy of our attention Oh, for sure. And what's not obvious is mm-hmm. has meaning, nevertheless. I guess I think that's a good. I kind of wanted to pull, you know, just come back around to Thomas Merton, and you you also quoted Thomas Merton, and I think this follows on what you just said about that you were you were. Um, Moved by this, these lines of him that if you, you know, who are you writing for? Like if you write mm-hmm. for God, you will reach many men and bring them joy. If you write for men, you may make some money and you may give someone a little joy and you may make a noise in the world for a little while. If you write only for yourself, you can read what you yourself have written. And after 10 minutes, you'll be so disgusted that you will wish that you were dead. <laughs> um, and there you go, using, using you know, talking about God again. But no. I, I, did, I did just want to ask you, what was it about that that captured you and that spoke to you in terms of what you've learned about who you're writing for and why? Oh, I, I know that when I read that, it related instantly in my mind to um, something that I had read earlier uh, from uh, Buckminster Fuller, um, of whom I'm a, a terrific admirer. And 
as an inventor, as a philosopher, as an architect, as a social uh, scientist, you know, his thought was, you know, I am exponentially more successful when I'm working for the good of the, of the most people. So when I was trying to serve myself, I wasn't successful at all. When I worked to, to benefit 10 people, I was that much more successful. When my work was to benefit 1,000 people, I was that much more successful. And when I thought that the work that I was doing would benefit all mankind, I was, I was infinitely beyond my imagination successful. And when I read that from, from Merton, I thought it was sort of the same idea. You know, as soon as I'm, you know, taking my focus off my, my own finite being and pointing my lens out, I'm still filtering my work through my own experience. Mm -hmm. It's impossible not to. But if as a writer, as any kind of creator, if you, if you look within, that's a very finite space. If you use that lens to look out and use your experience to look at everything else, you know, it's infinite. And uh, I, I think when I, when I, you know, Merton saying that was the most concrete I'd ever heard that mm -hmm. stated. Because I've certainly written things um, that the next morning I read and wished I was dead. <laughs> but maybe you loved them the night before when you first wrote them. Oh, um, right? of course you do. <laughs> but yeah. but but there's a new there's nuance there because um, to write for all mankind, as Buckminster mm. Fuller says, or mm. to write for God, mm -hmm. as Thomas Merton says. Um, is not necessarily about having the highest profile thing, right? It's not necessarily about having the biggest thing or being the celebrity, yeah, right? Apparently not. Yeah. Um, so but you know, but it is about just. It's more you know, about intention. And yeah, and 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 that intention is to is to free yourself of your own vanity, mm -hmm. and you know, vanity in in the great sense of the word, not not just the the way that we we use it so uh, colloquially now, but but the idea of, of of everything having to like reflect back on you, you know. Um, it's something that I, as a writer, am thinking about, you know, pretty continuously, is how to how to take myself out of the equation, um, in the way that you know, uh, if you know anything about John Cage, you know, his whole, you know, he created methods of of, of or he invented. Uh, devised ways of writing music that would take his personality out of it. He wasn't trying to write music that he himself would find beautiful. Hmm, he said he, he wanted to set up circumstances where music could happen and then, like, hear what that was, you know. But I don't think that's what you do. And I think there's a creative tension, right, between, uh, you know, taking yourself out of the equation on some level, but the... Uh, your voice and your life and the particularities of your experience. Mm. Um, I'm not as involved as John Cage. I'm the first to admit it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I don't think we all know we don't all <laughs> like John Cage's music, um, oh. right? But it's it's that it's that interplay. I mean, I just I think that, and that's mm. especially true of you. And it's not it doesn't diminish. It doesn't it doesn't make things too personal. It's a big paradox, right? There's yeah. a way to sh to let. Uh, truth and insights and words and songs come through you and be shaped by everything you are and know, yeah. I mean, but we not all have you be, at the center of the equation. I mean, we all want it to be pretty. And I'm, you know, back to Bucky Fuller, you know, I remember him saying to a, a group of our young architect students, he said, quit thinking about beautiful, you know, making anything beautiful. Put it out of your mind. You know, if you're designing a structure for somebody. If, if, if the structure is 
sound and it's realizable and it's feasible for them and it serves the purpose and they can afford to do it, it will be beautiful. You can't miss beauty. Mm. And in, this, in the same way that I think the, the you know, rawest, um, you know, most brutal parts of our humanity are nonetheless uh, can be incredibly beautiful if, you know, if we're willing to see them that, you know, see it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the great disparity. You know, what, what's the great quote from Tom Waits where he said, you know, um, uh, I, you know, I love, um, you know, beautiful melodies telling me terrible things. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I might have gotten that a little bit wrong. But, you know, that, that idea that, you know, that is, you know, when, when, when we can really uh, embrace, all, you know, every bit of our humanity, you know, even, you know, even the, the parts that, that shame us the most. I mean, there is such great beauty in being uh, uh, cracked open. I mean, I really do think that that's what, you know, uh, Rilke's going on about, you know, th- uh, two-thirds of the time yeah. about, you know, how much beauty is, 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 is there in, in our sort of in our, in our brokenness. You know, and if if that's not a a, a, a good summary for for uh, you know what I look for in a song, I don't know what is. Okay. You know? <laughs> well, this has been great. Is well, there is there anything I haven't asked you, or anything else you want to add? Boy, um, I mean, I could go on and on, um, but I, I don't I don't know if there's anything that that that, that you haven't uh, asked me that might be uh, of interest to you. Mm. I think it's. I think the conversation is complete. I hope I didn't ramble too much. No, no, you didn't ramble. Yeah. If you did, it wouldn't matter because we have Pro Tools. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I'm trusting in all right. that. Believe me. <laughs> but you did not works. ramble, as it um, happens. I think they'd like some. Um, we have some visitors who just are here for the end. Um, well, do you want to talk about Sparrow? So often, do you oh, maybe playing that? One? Would you play that? I one? probably could play that one. Yeah? What do you think? I think I could try it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe is there, if there's another one that you'd like to play. In terms I just of haven't practiced that one in a little bit. I'm just yeah. trying, trying to think if I if I I could play it. Play I probably it. could. All right. It's new I'll enough. Okay, that'd be great. I have to retune this. Is there is there a good, beautiful sound in here? Is it? it it's there's a good, very good dry. sound in here. Is it dry? We haven't had music in here. We haven't not done a lot of music. No, in here, it's so all. It's, uh, when I've had a friend come in and play. And do music, yeah, really? It's tricky. Like, it's like you really want this. Oh, it's so good for what I do. Well, I will not use uh, headphones, but you can put some verb on it if you like. Yeah. Guitar has actually traveled pretty good. It's, it's old. It's, it, it was never it had never been played when I got it, but it's from 1932. It's one of those great stories that was under somebody's bed, literally, uh, and unplayed. Krista, I have an idea of somebody that I think you need to have on your show if you okay. have not. You know who James Carroll is? Yes. Have you ever had him on your show? I haven't had him on the show. Do you know him? I do. He's a he's a friend. I, yeah. And he's just the most. I think he's an extraordinary person. Yeah. He. What a mind he has. He's somebody I've. I agree. 
We became friends uh, through my friend Ed Bacon, the rector at the Radical Episcopal Church in Pasadena. And mm-hmm. James comes and speaks there maybe once a year, uh, lectures there. And, and we. You know, he tends to write these great big books, and then he gets he's on all the talk shows, and he gets. Oh, does he of, get all? And he gets he gets lots of press, and so there were times when I. I've thought about it, but I just felt like, you know, he's out there, his voice is out there. Yeah, I, I don't know how much, I, I'm not aware of how much press he may get. But I'm, I'm happy to think he's getting plenty. Yeah. Um, but he's, a, he's an incredible mind and a lovely man. things. Voice from me talking, or do you need me to sing some? Sing? <clears throat> it wasn't peace I wanted, so it wasn't peace I found. I wouldn't stand for reason, and it never. shoulder has not one kind thing to say my eyes on the sparrow but she looks the other way carry on Never would sit down 
on my shoulder Has not one kind thing to say My eyes on the sparrow But she looks the other way Carry on And me away Hey, look alive The end of day And our very blood tastes like honey now Our very blood tastes like honey
wait for one grave angel I know she waits for me Carry on And me away Hey, look alive The end of days And our very blood tastes like honey now Our very blood tastes like honey plenty of my humanity on display in that performance. Do with it what you will. Thank you so much. Oh, thank I can't you. wait to see you tonight. Oh, I'm delighted that you're coming. Yeah.